On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagahafin Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Amotzi lekemin haretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness, and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen the blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children May the Lord bless and keep you. May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. This Shabbat, I'm excited about it. We are about to begin the teaching of the last book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy here in our annual Torah cycle. And if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. A little quick quip about introducing the book to you. Deuteronomy actually means the repetition of the law. Moses is going to be recounting certain things that have already taken place. And in the course of the adventure of the Exodus and going through the wilderness, getting ready. And in fact, in his opening words, he announces where he's at the writing of this. And if you'll notice here in the first verse, these are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Erevah opposite Suf. He is literally in the place getting ready to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. He's at the top of the Erva Valley, which is a valley, very dry valley, 
that extends down from the Dead Sea all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. And it's a very dry area down in there. And he's opposite the Jordan. He's up above the Dead Sea. He's getting ready to be able to cross over. We are basically, he's writing this book in the final year of the 40 years in the wilderness, and he's going to recount to us what has transpired, what has taken place. So we call it the repetition of the law. Now, in the Hebrew, we have a different name for it. We call it Devarim, which means words. And from the first verse where he says, and these are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel. And one of the things that is interesting about that is Devarim also means things. And so you may hear the expression, words mean things. The word Devarim contains all of that. It talks about, and what it's really going to bring out, and what makes this book unique in its presentation as compared to the rest of the Torah, is he's actually showing how the words that were said at these events were the compelling issues of what transpired. By the way, in the course of your life, you may go and do a variety of things that will be recounted as the narrative of your life. But I will tell you that the real experience of your life was in those events. What did you say and what did you hear said? Case in point, he's going to tell us and recount about what was the event when we went to Mount Sinai. And he's going to talk about what were the words that God said because it changed everything. In this first portion, he's going to talk about when they sent the spies in and why they ended up spending 40 years in the wilderness and about how the words of the people, what they said when they got the report back from the spies, what they said that caused them to not go into the promised land, but caused them for that generation to remain in the wilderness for some 40 years. Words mean things. In all of your relationships, as we get along with other people, the words you choose to use is going to define the real experience that you have with your brethren. If your words amongst the brethren are always kind and praising and edifying and encouraging, you will have that kind of experience in the course of your life. But if your words are mumbling and grumbling and criticizing and being negative, well, you can imagine, well, that will be your experience. It will have words mean things. And how you said, I have a kind of a standing joke with my wife. You know, she will get up in the day and she'll have a number of things that she needs to do and she'll make the statement, well, I have to do such and such. And when we review our daily schedules with each other, and I keep reminding her, I said, it's not that you have to do it. You get to do it. See, put it in the positive sense, and it will go better. You'll have more energy for it. But if you have to do it, you're always looking for reasons not to do it. And you're always, and by the way, that's an attitude toward God as well. God has, in fact, commanded us to do several things. He wants us to live the life that he's given to the fullest. And sometimes he will tell us how he wants that done. And rather than going around saying, well, I have to, why don't you put it in the positive and enjoy the life that God has given to you? So that's one of the things that characterizes this book 
slightly different from the previous books that we have in the rest of the Torah. This is what Moses is doing. And quite honestly, he's come to the end of his life. He's going to be dying very shortly, and he is trying to put together his final thoughts, his final words for the benefit of the children of Israel. The book is actually divided by teachers and scholars. We divide it into a series of discourses. And in the book of Deuteronomy, they characterize, define it as being five different discourses, how he's going to handle things. He's going to talk about the past. He's going to talk about the present. And in the end, he'll be talking about the future. And so he puts it in the form of discourses here as he gives you the repetition of the law. Here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And after having announced where he's at, where he's writing the book, the first thing he wants to do is he wants to recount to us the history of Israel after the Exodus and the events that transpired at that. And in particular, he wants to jump on, in his estimation, one of the events that had the most profound effect on his life and upon those that were with him, and namely, it was the whole case about the spies and about how the whole the whole thing happened that they ended up in the wilderness for as long as they did. Because the plan was, we're going to leave Egypt, we're going to the promised land. The only intermediate step is we're going to go to the mountain and God's going to make a covenant with us, and then we're going to go to the promised land. Well, as you know, we made the part about getting to the mountain, heard what God had to say, and then we started having problems. And, you know, we had the golden calf problem. Then we get up to Kadesh Barnea. Now we're afraid problem. Don't want to go in. And so he's recounting some of these key events that happened. One of the things that I have, as a Messianic teacher, have shared that there seems to be a pattern about how Israel came out of Egypt that seems to be a pattern, a common pattern for a lot of brethren who come out of the world, come out of the church, and want to come into the Messianic movement. One of the first things that a lot of Christians go through that gets their attention about Messianic teachings and Messianic things is probably seeing a Passover Seder. They get invited. Somebody comes and shows them a Passover Seder. Of course, within the church, that's the roots of where communion the cup of the bread come from. And then the Passover, where you have the four cups, you have the Afikoman bread, and you have the whole dinner in the Seder. So you get a bunch of Christians, get a bunch of people that are kind of interested in what's going on, and they go through the Passover, and all of a sudden they get excited about, there's a whole bunch more stuff to learn about the Messiah. And by the way, that's the most enriching thing I ever did. And it was a feast, you know, they get excited about. So they want to know, well, what else? What other things? Do you messianics do and so forth? And one of the next things that they do is they find out about Sabbath. Oh, you guys meet on Saturday. Oh, as opposed to Sunday. Oh, okay. And then the next thing you hear, you guys eat different things. You don't eat the same things I eat. And if you go back and look at the pattern, you have the Passover, the death of the firstborn, you have this business of crossing the Red Sea, starting to keep the Sabbath and starting to eat manna. Then we come to the Torah and we start learning about God's laws, the Torah. Guess what? That's about the time that a Messianic believer 
has gone through all that transition, and now he's seated before somebody who's teaching Torah, maybe a guy like me. And they take a seat before me, and they hear the teaching of the Torah. They hear about what did God tell Moses at Mount Sinai to tell to the people. And they, at that point, they begin to listen to the commandments, turn to the teaching of Moses, and they begin to walk out the feasts and all the other things that come with the Messianic movement. That's the pattern. That's the same pattern of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. The reason why, and I know this when people first hear this, it's kind of hard for them to grasp it. I find in the law of Moses, in, in these books, the stories of the ancients and the things that happened to them, I call it living Torah. I, as I go through the cycle each year, I find the evidence in my life and in the lives of those that I'm around, the same issues that are in the principles being expressed in the Torah, they match. In other words, if I can learn the principle in the Torah of these various things, I find that is the thing that guides me on a weekly basis amongst in my own life and in the lives of other brethren that are associated with me. I call it living Torah. By the way, there is a verse in Psalms 40, verse 7, that says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the scroll, it's written of me. Yeshua, by the way, quoted that. He was saying the whole Torah scroll is written about him. And if we become believers in the Messiah and we receive him into our lives, well, that's the same stuff that's going to be in us. We're going to find where our lives are bound up in the words that are in these books as well. The principles being expressed are principles that apply to us. Much teaching can be gained from it. Let me, let me continue to read here. Verse 4, And after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Asheroth and Andre, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey. Now, before I go further, what did he just say? He said, Here we are. We're at the end of our wilderness journey, and if you recall, just before us, we wiped out a couple of kings. They were the Amorites. We had defeated the Amorites. And if you remember back in the book of Numbers, when Balak called for Balaam, he had seen what the children of Israel had done to the Amorites, and he was afraid. He was afraid of the children of Israel. That's the reason why he hired Balaam, tried to come down to curse Israel. So Moses is now recounting I'm in, I'm in those places. I'm in that place where all that stuff took place, where we defeated the Amorites and so forth. And he goes on to say, verse 7, Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arevah, in the hill country and in the lowland, in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have placed the land before you go in and possess the land. Hold on. That description that is given here in verse 7 is a lot bigger than the Israel that you see on the maps. That goes from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. 
all the way down to the south to Aqaba, all the way up into Lebanon. And one of the things that you may hear the expression of is what is called the greater Israel. See, we believe that the land that we've, that Israel has enjoyed in the promised land is, quote, the down payment on the kingdom. Israel, that's the name of the kingdom. And that part of the land is the down payment. We believe that when God establishes a kingdom, Israel, it will be the whole world. And so we just have this first part. And we're always looking kind of beyond the borders of the borders that we know of Israel today. And by the way, when you're looking beyond the borders and you go to the Euphrates River, that is definitely looking past the borders of Israel, we understand today, that we have this vision. Later on, we're going to have Moses, as you know, in fact, in the next Torah portion, where he's going to plead with God, please let me go into the promised land, and God is going to prohibit Moses from going to the promised land. But he's going to give him an opportunity to see it, and he's going to allow him to climb up on a mountain there in western Jordan, and he's going to be told to see the promised land. And if you listen to that description, I'll think about this for a moment. You're in western Jordan, you're on a mountain, and where are you going to, which direction are you going to look to see Israel? Well, obviously, you're going to look to the west. You're going to look to the west, maybe a little southwest, maybe a little northwest, you know, to see the whole scope of the breadth of Israel and so forth. But as we'll show you in the passage, when he goes up to look, guess what God tells him to do? Look in the north, the east, the south, and the west. Because what Moses was granted was a vision of Israel in the kingdom, not the one they were going to cross over the Jordan and go into. He didn't get to go into the historical Israel, but he was given the vision to see the kingdom of Israel in the final estimation. In Israel today, uh, and around the world today, the subject of the greater Israel. The idea that God, the God of Israel, would establish his kingdom over the whole world, and it would be called Israel, literally are viewed as fighting words. They, there are people in this world that hate that idea. They can't stand the idea that God would have established his kingdom in that way. And so here's Moses giving allusions to the greater kingdom, the greater Israel that God has planned and the children of Israel are going in place. Verse 8, see, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to them and their descendants after them. Before we go any further, one of the things we have to emphasize and within our Messianic faith, you and I are some of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you know that? We are the descendants of them. And one of the things that's expressed specifically about that, if you're a believer of Yeshua of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel, then that proves that you're a descendant of Abraham. You're one of the ones that were promised to Abraham. He would be the father of many nations. And if you are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then God's promises and his heritage that he gives to him, that's your heritage and that belongs to you. Now, you may be a Gentile sitting there 
still trying to figure this all out, I have news for you. As a result of your faith in Messiah and turning back to the teaching of Moses, as we're doing here today, you're one of the descendants of Abraham, and those promises that are in here are for you. That heritage that's in here is, belongs to you. The land of Israel is your promised land. And we're going to realize this promise when the Messiah returns, establishes his kingdom, and that's where we're going to live with him. I find it fascinating that there are some Christians that think, well, when the Lord comes back, I'm going to get zapped up out of here. I'm going to be up in heaven, and there will be a bunch of other people down here on the earth. I'll just come down to visit once in a while, maybe be kind of in charge with God. You know, I'll rule and reign over people. But they don't speak of this place as being their real home, as belonging to them. They see themselves in the kingdom, but they don't realize they're part of Israel. They're part of this Israel that's prophesied and talked about. And to me, that is a lot about what this whole messianic teaching thing is for you, brethren. As I heard one man say, and I agree heartily with this, the messianic movement is really an identity movement. We're finding out who you really are and who God really is and who are you to God and how does God view you? you know, how do we define ourselves? It's an identity movement. And the simple answer to all of that is you are the descendants, the promised descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promised land belongs to you and it's your heritage and the Messiah belongs to you and you belong to the Messiah. And part of what Deuteronomy is trying to do here, part of what Moses is trying to do, is set the stage as he finishes his teaching in the wilderness. He's trying to launch Israel into the promised land and give them the sense of this. This is the promised land. This is what God purposed for us. And he's going to try to exhort that generation that's going into the land and encourage them in that. The same message that he's given them is appropriate for us, in particular as the last generation, because we're getting ready to cross over the Jordan and go in the promised land ourselves. This message is very appropriate for us to listen to and to be a part of it. Verse 9, and I spoke to you at that time saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are as this day as the stars of heaven for the multitude. And we've talked about the book of Numbers and that the number of the sons of Israel for battle was more than the stars of the heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. This is a very positive message. You know, God, I hope God increases you even more. How can I alone bear the load and the burden of you and your strife? Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. And essentially, that's what they did. They had to establish leadership in the camp. I want you to understand, why did they have to do that? Why did they have to have leadership? Because I myself cannot bear your strife. I don't think I need to explain to you, you and I, brethren, all of us, when we get together, the more we get together, the more strife there is, the more conflicts there are. You know, if there's only two of you, 
there's not a whole lot of hassles. Get a hundred of you together, all of a sudden we got this and that and this other things going on over here and these people there and all that. And that's part of the reason why you have leadership is to reduce that strife and maintain peace, you know, within the assembly. So he says, choose wise, discerning, and experienced man from your tribes, and I'll appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, and you said, the thing which you have said is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, appointed them as heads over you, leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and officers for your tribes. I want you to take note of something. They didn't vote on this. They agreed with the concept that there needed to be leaders over him. And then Moses appointed leaders over him. In the faith, leaders are not elected by the people. They're appointed. Other leaders appoint them because they're looking for those that will have the prerequisite skill and wisdom to be able to do the job. And the people themselves electing them you don't necessarily get the wise, the discerning, and the experience. For crying out loud, excuse me for doing this, but let's look at our example of the United States of America. In the last presidential election, we elected a man, quite honestly, I wouldn't take to a family reunion. I'm not sure what exactly he would do with some of the people there. And on top of that, everybody in the family would be having to try to, quote, take care of him because he doesn't know how to function around other people or speak correctly or say the right things. And he's bumbling around and you'd have to make sure that the raw, the floor is clear so he doesn't stumble and fall and so forth. We elected that guy to be the head of the greatest nation in the world at the present time. Boy, we sure picked a good one, didn't we? Just from the standpoint of these criteria here, wise, discerning, and experienced. Well, I'll give them experience, but it's the wrong kind of experience. It's not the good experience we wanted. And it turns out, as you know, the allegations have come against him that he's taken bribes, that he's corrupt. We voted for him. We elected him. Here, Moses appointed the right people to get Israel going. And the moment that we shift gears and we think a guy that is anointed by the Lord should be elected by the people is the moment we're not listening to the Lord and we're not going to benefit from what God is going to establish in leadership because he's supposed to bring in leaders that will help the congregation. So let's look at verse 16. Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. Did you hear that? It wasn't just the native born that were to benefit from a good judge and a good judicial system. Everybody's supposed to benefit from it, including the alien and the sojourner. There is no exclusion in the judgment, and he goes on to say, make sure those judges do it impartially. There's no bias in their judgment. Let them render a judgment, a good judgment, a decision based on what are the facts. 
those are the principles of the Torah. And as you know, we have a Torah portion called Judges. Justice, justice, you shall pursue. Not only pursue justice, but do it in a just way, is the teaching. And so he's recounting, hey, we established that so that we could hear the cases, so that we could set the country up and do it correctly. Verse 19, then we set out from Horeb, that's the, toward Mount Sinai, and went through all the great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Hamorites, and just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. Remember what happened at Kadesh Barnea? That was a launching point to go into the promised land. And I said to you, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go in and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Okay, we're at the brink. We're getting ready to now receive the promised land. He said, remember, got to that point. We were ready to do it, but then something changed. There were some words said. And so what is said? Verse 22, then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us the word of the way by which we should go up and the cities that we shall enter. And the thing pleased me, and I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up to the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and spied it out. Whose idea was it to send spies in? Was it the Lord's? No, it was the people's idea. Was it actually Moses's idea? No. He heard from other men and it sounded like a good idea. If you're going to lead a spiritual group, who do we listen to when it comes to how we should do that? Should we take a vote? Should we all, let's be democratic, we'll all have a say about what we should do. Not according to this. All that did was get them in all kinds of trouble. In fact, the spies they put together and they went in, you know, they brought some of the fruit back and then they discouraged the people and gave a bad report. And as a result, God said, okay, you guys are going to spend some more time in the wilderness. In fact, this generation that's so afraid will not listen to me, will not do what I ask them to do. I'm going to let you die in the wilderness. And by the way, your women and children, you were so afraid we're going to be harmed by the enemy. I will take them and we'll go in and take the land. There's a couple of lessons to learn out of this. One, if the Lord has you on a path to do something, then there's no reason for you to be afraid. The Lord's with you. There's nothing more powerful than the Lord. And if he says, I put you on this path, this is what we're going to do, that's what's going to happen. Something else isn't going to happen unless you change the plan. Furthermore, they said the wisdom of sending the spies, we'll see which way to go up into the land. We'll figure it, we'll make an assessment what are the obstacles? What are the things that we'll need to overcome? We will get involved in the decision-making process of how to solve that. So here they are. They're not even confronted with it yet. They're worrying about how they're going to solve future problems. Oh my gosh. 
Oh my gosh, boy, could we learn a lesson from that one. How many people do you know that you sit down with and they're fretting and worrying about something and they're worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, a week from now, week, a month from now, next year? We have enough problems right now today that we just need to concentrate our energies on. The Lord is with us, brethren. As far as next week's problem, the Lord will still be with us and he'll still be helping us, but I can't solve next week's problem, next year's problem today. I'm not there yet. Let me take just a sidebar moment. We have shared extensively with you, and I truly and sincerely believe that we're the last generation. And there's a lot of prophecies that talk about the things that happen at the end. And some of them, quite honestly, they're concerning. I mean, the Bible itself says it's a time of distress as the world has never seen before. It says there's a lot of harm that's going to take place to a lot of different human beings. Judgments from God, enemies of God that will be here and we'll be dealing with them. They'll be oppressing us. And it's a bad scene. Okay. Now, the Great Tribulation has not yet begun. All right. Are you with me? So why am I trying to solve the problem of going through the Great Tribulation and I'm not even in it yet? Oh, well, I was trying to be wise, just trying to get ready. You know, so, well, I'll tell you how to be wise and get ready is start believing the Lord. The Lord says clearly in the scripture concerning the Great Tribulation, there will be those that will escape, they will survive, and they will endure, and they will see the coming of the Lord. Now, that's a fact. Now, that fact is sitting right next door to the fact that says it will be a time of distress as the world has never seen before. Now, you're not going to solve the problem right now today on how to accomplish all that the Lord has said there. And by the way, you're sitting around fretting about it and worrying about it and getting panicky about it is accomplishing nothing. It's terribly unwise. Why do you think that people came up with the idea, let's send spies in first? Because they were anticipating there might be obstacles in there. I mean, they had just got through fighting some of the Amorites, and they're saying, well, we got this army that we've got built here. I guess we may have to fight some people. There may have to be some conquest involved. And as a matter of fact, there is. As a matter of fact, there is. But Israel will prevail. We will win. So why are we fretting it? Why are we trying to figure out how to solve that problem when it's really God's problem to solve? You ever heard the verse, the battle is mine, says the Lord? You ever heard that concept? You don't, you don't fight the battle. He fights his own battles. He fights the battles for you. Rather than letting him do it, let us get ourselves in front of him and let's go figure out and so we can counsel God and tell him how to do his job. Do you understand how absurd that sounds? I watch my brethren today, and I see various brethren fretting and worrying about what's coming in the future. In fact, I've been accused by talking about the end time prophecies and about sharing with you what the prophecies say. I've been accused 
of causing fear for people. You know, I talk about gloom and doom, you know, for people. And as a result, it's decapitating to them. It, it renders them impotent. That they can't take care of themselves anymore because they're all afraid. They're all, you know, doing crazy things. The same scripture says, do not be afraid. Same scripture says, trust me. Same scripture says, I will do it for you. I will go in. I will remove the enemy. I will take care of that. Just stick with me. Do we want to stick with the Lord? No. We want to sin spies him because we're smarter than God. We are so much smarter than God. We know how to figure things out for God that God hasn't even considered. Like, how do we go take the promised land? I'm being facetious, obviously. But that's where it was in that day. Even Moses got caught up in this. He said, well, it sounded like a good idea to me. Well, we all know the results. It did not work out well for the children. And here's what happened. Verse 26. And you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents, and you said, because the Lord hates us, as he brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us, where can we go up? Our brethren are made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to the heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim there. And then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Oh, you remember that part? You remember the, you remember Egypt? You were already captive with the Egyptians, and they were the superior civilization at that time, even more than these Amorites and these Canaanites and all these others that are in the land. And yet God delivered you out of Pharaoh and Egypt, but God obviously doesn't have the ability to deliver you from the inhabitants that are in the land. And he's trying to remind them, hey, wait a minute, stop and think about this for a moment. What has God already done for you? That should demonstrate to you and prove to you what God will do for you in the future. No, they're not remembering, they're not believing, and it's tragic. The moment we decide to ignore what God has done for us in the past and not trust God for the day's future, we're making the same mistake as our ancestors. I might add the same dumb mistake that our ancestors have made. Verse 31, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you've come to this place. A very interesting word picture. Very interesting word picture. You ever seen a father carrying his son? First of all, the son is young, can't, you know, I mean, the son can walk, he's capable, but the son can't stand up and fight. So the father picks the son up and he carries him. And one of the things that sons learn when they get carried by the father is that dad is a lot stronger than I realized he was. He does not have any problem lifting me up and holding me and hanging on to me. He doesn't have any problem. He's very strong. Your God is like a father to you carrying a son. He's very powerful, very strong, 
and he is very capable of taking care of you. Once you're in his arms and you feel that, you can relax. You can, okay, I'm safe, I'm good. The whole idea is don't walk away from your Heavenly Father. Walk to his arms. Get in his arms so that he can carry you where you need to go. Verse 32, but for all of this, you did not trust the Lord your God. Tragic words. Unbelievably tragic words. All of this, it didn't faze you. You didn't trust. Moses is recounting what took place there in the wilderness. Verse 34, then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, none of this man, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, and he shall see it, and to his sons and his sons I will give the land on which they have set up, because he has followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter it, Moses. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there and encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around, set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. You're not going into the promised land. Do you realize how difficult that must have sounded? By the way, you're not going in the promised land. You've seen all the things that I've done as God. Your son, who doesn't even know anything about me one way or the other, he's going to be going in the promised land. Wow. God takes very seriously the business of whether you trust him or not. He takes very seriously about whether you trust him fully. If you trust him fully, he uses you in his kingdom. Joshua and Caleb. They, in fact, Joshua got the job of going in and leading the children of Israel on the conquest of the land. Because he trusted the Lord fully. He believed in the command of the Lord. He believed in the promises of the Lord. He said, let's do it. Whereas the others were afraid. The others were listing excuses and reasons why we can't. In the course of our days, as many of us are making the transition into Messianic teaching and understanding the Torah and so forth, we got a lot of people, even our friends, our family members, telling us, you can't keep the commandments of the Lord. They weren't intended for you. They don't belong to you. They belong to some other group. And all they want to do is argue with you to not trust the Lord and not obey the Lord. Don't listen to what the Lord says is going to be happening with you. So let's listen to other things. I don't want to hear anything more about the great trib and all that other stuff and the judgments of God and so forth. I only want to hear good stuff. I don't want to hear that anymore. And we got all kinds of people trying to keep you, us and you from doing what the Lord says and trusting him fully. I understand this is a great trouble. This is a problem. By the way, that's what Moses is recounting. Hey, that's what they went through. When they came to go to the promised land, they balked. They refused to go. They didn't trust the Lord. Now, you and I, we only have the story of this. 
before them, they got to see the actual judgments. They got to hear the actual voice of God from the mountain, and that still wasn't enough to get them to trust him. How in the world are we going to trust him when all we have is the written record of such things took place? How are we going to learn the lesson and not make that mistake again? Well, you might want to look down into your heart and ask, are you prepared for that? Do you have a sense of the Lord enough? Have you come to the point in your walk with the faith that you can obey the Lord and trust him at the same time? Has he tested you a little bit? Has he put you in a situation where you had to go forward with the Lord, but it wasn't a comfortable situation? Maybe somebody didn't like you for doing it. Have you gotten past those tests? Because when we come to the end of the age, it's going to be a full-blown test. And as you know, we've repeated this many times before, all the lessons in the wilderness, all the lessons that we read here, what happened with the children of Israel in the wilderness, they're going to be hitting us at the end of the age. We're going to go through the same lessons. And one of the biggest ones that we're going to face is right when the abomination of desolation takes place. We've been talking about these prophecies, and all of a sudden, let's say they happen. Okay, that means, okay, we're going to go on the greater exodus. That means, you know, the Lord's going to be coming back in another three and a half years. All we have to do is make it the next three and a half years. We're going to be leaving. We're going to get out of Babylon. We're going to leave Egypt. We're going to, you know, we're going to get into the camps of the righteous, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, you're going to go, eh, I think it's too hard. I don't think I can do it. And you're literally going to be in the face of God saying, come, you know, I'll deliver you. You're saying, well, I got a better plan. You know, where, where, where are we going to go? Can we send spies in? Can we go check out where we're going to be first? You know, all that nonsense. All the reasons to not trust the Lord. The Lord ain't going to put up with it. He didn't put up with it down there. He ain't going to put up with this it's here. We got to learn these lessons. We got to learn them quickly. What follows in the rest of this portion, chapters two and three, is a continuing story of all the different conquests and different places they wandered in the wilderness. It wasn't easy, but they made it. There were hassles along the way, but they made it. And, you know, he's recounting and bringing it all the way up to where we're at this moment where now we're getting the end of the 40 years, we're getting ready to cross over the Red Sea and, or excuse me, over the Jordan. And he's recounting to the children of their ancestors that didn't trust the Lord. Their ancestors are already gone. He's talking to the children of those ancestors and said, this is what your parents did. This is what happened to us. This is how you got to where you're at right now. And he's trying to encourage them and prepare them to go into the land, despite the difficulties and struggles over it. Interestingly enough, all those struggles, all those things they had to go through, you know what it actually did to the next generation? It was a training program. It taught the people how to deal with struggles. It taught them how to deal with the hassles and so forth, and to prevail and to be successful. 
I have discovered now after 70 plus years of life that a lot of stuff that I see in my life that I had to go through, they were all teaching programs. And the average person that I get to talk to who's lived a few years, they will tell you the same thing. They look back on their life and they see the events of their life, things they had to go through, that God was actually teaching them various things so that they were the person they are today. And I am today the product of all those previous experiences and things that I did and where I was and who I visited, and people I met and all that stuff. I'm a product of that training program that God put me on. And we see here this generation went through a 40-year training program so they could go in and take the promised land. And a lot of people, if you'd just be wise and step back for a moment, look at the training program. I think you'll come up with the same conclusion as us. I'm here by the grace of God. I'm here because God made a way for me to be here. And oh, by the way, along the way, God saved me from all the nonsense that I was involved with earlier, thank goodness, and has brought me to this point. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. That's great. And by the way, it's evidence that God loves you. God cares about you. He's trying to help you to prosper you and do good to you. Amen and amen. Brethren, uh, the next portion is going to start dealing with even more of this, where the God is going to speak very directly to us about this whole subject I've been talking about. And Moses is going to address the fact that he doesn't get to go in the promised land. And he's going to talk about the reasons for that. I can tell you what the reasons are. Unbelief. Even Moses paid the price of not going to the promised land because of unbelief. That's what's looking for us in the very next portion of Deuteronomy. But for this Sabbath, Shabbat Shalom. I hope you have a happy and wonderful Sabbath. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.